Did you know money, sex, and food are all processed in the same part of the brain? Stay tuned as our next guest, a financial psychologist, explains. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Alex Malkumian. As a financial psychologist, we talk about many topics related to our money stories and how they impact our decisions. Dr. Alex Makumian talks about this quote that really resonated with me. He said, money is not the issue. It's how we relate to money that is the issue. He talks about the cultural impacts our backgrounds, our cultural backgrounds have on our money stories. He he was born in the communist Soviet Union and then moved to Los Angeles, one of the most capitalistic cities in the world. And he speaks about how these two different scripts impact his money story today and how all of our cultural backgrounds impact our current day money stories. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Alex Melkumian. Dr. Alex is a licensed marriage and family therapist and the founder of the Financial Psychology Center in Los Angeles, California. He is devoted to helping clients improve their financial and mental health by uncovering patterns in their relationship with money that keep them stuck in suffering. Specifically, he works with athletes and others to improve their financial wellness and overall performance. Financial psychology is the intersection between financial literacy, emotional awareness, financial beliefs, and cultural factors. Dr. Alex focuses on uncovering the truth of our own personal story and helps people discard outdated stories and create new stories based on their wishes. As an immigrant from the Soviet Union, he has lived in Los Angeles, California for more than 20 years, both basing his studies and his practice here. Dr. Alex is married to his wife of 10 years and father of two rambunctious children. Dr. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. I'm excited to have our conversation today. And just before we started recording, we're just talking about what would be a good focus. And I had an idea in my head and you suggest an idea and they were the same. So I think that's a great place to start. A lot of your work is around money, emotions, and also the cultural background that each and every one of us have. And I want to start there. You talk a lot about, and I also believe that we all have these stories, these stories that we tell ourselves on a daily basis that are influenced by these subconscious thoughts, feelings, and beliefs that we have. And one of those factors that influence our stories, which then goes on to influence our money stories, is our cultural background. So one's cultural narrative, basically. So the cultural stories that we're telling ourselves or the things that we've been influenced from our culture have a big impact on our stories. As someone who grew up in the Soviet Union and then moved to the USA, can you speak on how culture, first off, holistically on just people in general, impact our stories and ultimately our money stories? And then you personally, how your upbringing in a different culture in the Soviet Union had impacted you. And then when you transitioned to the US, what happened? Was there a clash of cultures? Was there a clash of money stories? And how did you work through that? Well, that's a loaded topic, but it's so, so many layers. I love it. 
So first of all, I love that we're still on the same page about, you know, talking about culture. And it's a, such a fun, uh, exciting topic to discuss because there's so many stories that, you know, we derive from our culture. And this is actually really kind of taking me back to, you know, my love for financial therapy, financial psychology, and why I really decided to get into it in the first place. You know, I was a kind of a garden variety therapist here in Los Angeles. And as you probably know, there's more therapists per capita here in Los Angeles than pretty much anywhere in the world. So I decided to kind of find a niche. And one of the things that was really coming up for me around 2007, 8, and 9 were the stories around money that my clients were bringing in on the couch (laughs) in my office. And so we got to talking about the pain points that people were experiencing around money. You know, I was treating couples that was one of my specialties at the time. And I remember vividly how I was taken aback by so many, unfortunately, heartbreaking stories. A couple, one in particular that I can remember, husband and wife, the husband was kind of a Scrooge, right? Uh, Somebody who just held on to every penny. And the wife, you know, just really wanted to live lavishly, have the freedom to spend. And they were on the brink of retirement. And the narrative that they operated on were, let's get to retirement and then we can live freely. Well, retirement pretty much came. And, you know, the wife really felt very resentful that the husband basically took his word back. And did not allow for the same freedom that he promised all through their working years. You know, it was about 30 to 35 working years. And so that's the family culture, if I may bring them back to the cultural conversation Mm -hmm. that they had. These are the narratives that they operated on for about 30 to 35 years. And then that particular narrative, unfortunately, you know, didn't pan out or unfortunately really kind of informed the wife in a way where she was hopeful for so many years. Mm. But unfortunately, at the end, it created this heartbreak for her. So I think the conversation is, how many layers are there if if we can start talking about cultural layers? So there are national cultural layers. Obviously, as you mentioned, I grew up in the Soviet Union, and this is the land of equal opportunity and equal outcome. Uh, Everybody's equal. Money doesn't matter. Those are all the narratives that I grew up with. And then coming to the United States, uh, living in Los Angeles, there couldn't be more of a extreme opposite example or or a cultural narrative that I could have lived in. So the national culture, but you know, every family, like I just mentioned with the example of the couple has, has their own culture, different parts of our country. You know, if you live in LA or you live in a metropolitan, there is a very different cultural narrative compared to if you live in you know, either suburbia or Midwest or somewhere in, in a rural area. So all of those components really do matter. Yeah. So I like how you frame that around the how many layers. And instantly when I have the layer analogy, I think of an onion. So are, are there other layers that you've seen with clients on our culture? So we've talked about the national, our family unit, which... Yeah, maybe... Breaking that down a little more specifically is what, what kind of family unit uh, cultural layers do you see? And like, where do they come from? Well, I, I think most, most of the time, the way I kind of try to break it down is the family narrative 
that is happening right now in the moment versus the intergenerational narratives that each person within the couple, let's say that we were just talking about, how did those intergenerational narratives that they brought into the relationship, how did those inform how they are interacting and the emotional toll that the each uh, person, each partner is experiencing in the moment as they're interacting and discussing financial issues. So, you know, <laughs> what's interesting is that even our Freud, <laughs> funny enough, Sigmund Freud of all people, was completely affected by intergenerational narrative. So uh, the story is that his father was a carpenter in, I guess, mid to uh, late 1800s and uh, was not very successful at his craft. And Freud basically, you know, kind of grew up in this resentful sort of environment where he always looked up to his father, but his father never really made much success in his business. And uh, one of the quotes that really um, take, took me back when I read it was when he was a, a little boy, there were horses that were tied to uh, the, the ramp and they kept exhibiting this fear that he saw in the horse's faces. When wild horses were lassoed, they retained, um, I guess, a certain nervousness for life. I'm kind of paraphrasing it, but. And he said that in the same way, he once knew helpless poverty and has constantly continued to have fear of it. So throughout his life, he kind of juxtaposed his own success with uh, the lack of success of his own father. So that's a cultural or intergenerational narrative that, you know, really informed a lot of what he did as a man, as a psychologist, and gave him, you know, the impetus for the instinctual drive that drove him to the success that he, that he did. Wow, that's interesting. And like, think about the impacts Freud's work has had on all of us, which to your point, it's created out of his narrative or his culture that he was living as a child, looking up to his father. I've also heard that uh, Freud, one of the founders of psychology, talked about money on the same levels as feces <laughs> and avoided them. So yeah. He called it the filthy lucre, which is, <laughs> uh, it is a synonym to feces, yeah. So I guess it's no wonder we avoid this topic. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, it does kind of say a lot about why we avoid the topic and why it's such a, a taboo in our in Western culture. And that's part of the cultural narrative across uh, Western cultures. How many times do we go to parties, of course, pre-COVID, yeah. and are unable to talk about money? I mean, if you ask somebody what, you know, they make for a living in a year, what their salary is, you're going to get a stare back. Like, you know, there's something wrong. You don't ask those kind of questions. So that's part of our cultural narrative. Yeah. It's wild to me, but then we'll, we'll go off and talk about everything else. But one of the biggest influences in our lives, money, you've talked about Western culture a couple of times, and I'm actually curious with COVID going on right now, people having in Canada, we have lots of unemployment governments, people, there's a narrative going around or a story that universal income would be better. And this question isn't specifically about universal income and if we should do it or not. It's more about your experience and the cultures that you lived around money. So earlier when you talked about growing up in the Soviet Union, equality for everyone was the narrative. Uh, money didn't matter as much as it does when you entered into the LA narrative around money, which is hustle, 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 grind, rise and grind, I think they say out there. Based on your experiences, where do you think there's an optimal 
I don't think there's ever an optimal, but where should we aspire towards an optimal narrative towards money on your perspective? Because everyone's different. So like on your experience, this one narrative, money doesn't really matter. We're all equal versus the most capitalistic country in one of the most capitalistic cities. Where do you find the balance between focusing on money versus it doesn't matter in terms of our overall well-being? Great question. I, I think this is the conversation about personal finance versus sort of overall economics. And when we look at overall economics, it's really easy to predict human behavior. But when we kind of start, you know, looking much closer and, and looking at the individual, there's so many different layers of how and why we make decisions. Well, how and why we make decisions is it informs the, the narrative as well in that wanting to be supported, wanting to have affordable healthcare and, and their base, our basic needs met is part of a lot of people's narratives. So I, I love the question of where is that sweet spot between, you know, complete government assistance or, you know, the mentality of pull yourself by your bootstrap and you're an individual. <laughs> And government is not going to help you. I'm sure there is, you know, a sweet spot between those two. Growing up in Russia, I think I mentioned to you as we before we kind of got on the call is the narrative was money didn't matter. We're all equal. And so in, in some ways, sort of desensitizes the person or people in general from hard work and trying hard because everybody's going to be the same. Well, I think this is like an really almost a, a, an underlying fear of the capitalist culture is to get to that point. And because there is that underlying fear, the capitalist culture <laughs> kind of goes to the other side of the extreme, right? And pushes that narrative to, hey, we got to, you know, pull up and also by our bootstrap, we got to make it happen. And if there is some assistance, we don't want to make too much of a, we don't want to treat uh, people with too much of uh, kid gloves or soft hands. We want them to be able to work hard and feed and provide and, and grow and expand uh, the capitalist culture, right? But there is a discussion about what is the optimal minimum point, so. Yeah, and it's so interesting because like, I think we're getting to this point and many people are having this this conversation of like, when does capitalism go too far? And we see big companies owning so much wealth, individuals owning just vast amount of wealth. And it always is going through my head is like, what is that optimal balance level to allow people to flourish, but not allow or that allow that complacency to set in when there's too much assistance. But I know that free market, like Canada, we're a free market as well. It encourages people to be, I guess, innovative and creative and so forth. But when we look at like back to our culture and where we came from, not everyone is starting from the same blocks, so to speak. And I feel like in this extreme capitalistic perspective, it's unfair that we're all running this 100 meter race, but some people are actually their starting blocks are 50 meters behind the 100 meter starting line. So I guess with conversations that you've had with people, how important do you think it's in someone's overall well-being? How important do you think it's to have those basic necessities met? And and this is for, I guess, 
to allow people to guys to focus on like fulfilling and things that make them thrive. How, like, I guess, how important do you see those basic needs to be met? And I think sometimes even though people have financial means, those needs aren't being met because your example with the couple that the, the spouse, the female in the situation, I don't think her basic needs were being met. Sure. Like she had her shelter and everything and food taken care of, but she had no say her contribution didn't matter. And I think all of those impacts. So I guess my question is more around. How important do you think it is for people to have that baseline comfort level of security to allow them to step into being creative and so forth? And what is your perspective on this starting blocks of some people are ahead of each other in the the world of capitalism? How do those people keep up? The ones who are behind? What a great question. And I think as you're asking it, I kind of started thinking to my clinical psychology roots and thinking about attachment and security and how important that is. There have been so many studies on secure attachment for children, and if they grew up in a stable environment, in a secure attached home, where the provider is able to, you know, comfort them, provide for their basic needs, they grew up to be, you know, stable members of society. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're able to take care of themselves. They're able to be active members and, and great citizens. When that attachment is insecure as a child, obviously there becomes a lot of narratives of trauma. Maybe it's little T trauma uh, or big T trauma. Just to kind of explain that a little bit, you know, big T trauma would be something like sexual abuse, you know, witnessing some horrific act as a, as a kid. Uh, and little T trauma is more, you know, smaller things, maybe, you know, being present for parents arguing or kind of neglectful parents who are workaholics are not able to pay attention to that particular child. And so that particular child grows up traumatized and the little T's eventually add up to one big T. And when we talk about security, uh, our relationship with money, I feel like actually stems all the way back to our childhood. And it has a lot of parallels to how we attach with our primary caregivers. If we did grow up in a stable cat home, we are able to deal with money in a much better way because we don't have as many unresolved issues. And so money then becomes a conduit or almost like a psychodrama for untreated or untapped issues, the pain points that we carry with ourselves. And that's how we act those pain points out is through money. Yeah. You know, that, that last, like money is a conduit for those pain points. I was chatting to someone the other day and they were like, you know, personal finance is pretty easy. Actually, you got to make a good income. You got to save, you got to invest and avoid debt, but we're human. And money is a conduit for all of those little T traumas, big T traumas that I think everyone experiences to some degree. And I, I really like your, your reference of it is a conduit because I think that's exactly it is our money just brings those emotions out. My experience growing up is different than my spouse's. Your experience growing up is different than your spouse's. So we've talked about these cultural narratives impacting us and the different layers of culture. When we come together with somebody else, there, there's presumably some clashing of cultures there. And when we look at money is something that we want to avoid and we don't talk about. There's a lot of conversations that aren't had in relationships around money. Uh, I remember reading one study that talked about people who went through divorce and they interviewed the people who went through a divorce. And I think it was like 10% of the 
people in the first their first relationship talked about money prior to getting married. And the second one, it was like the number one thing that they wanted to talk about. So in hindsight, we know it's important. How do you find people can best have these conversations when we know there's going to be some clashing, there's going to be some defensiveness, there's going to be some emotional conversations around having these conversations with the clients that you see, the work that you've done. How do you think it's best for us to be like, okay, first I got an awareness. I got my own culture around money, my own perspective, my own emotions. I need to talk to my spouse. What is the best way to avoid two emotions going boom? To avoid World War Three, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> To avoid World War Three, yep. Yeah, I think I want to kind of piggyback on what you said. Personal finance is, is, is not that difficult, but we make it difficult. We overanalyze, we overthink, uh, we ruminate, we brew on certain things. So our minds, our internal world, and how we perceive, the lenses with, through which we perceive our, our relationship with money matters so much. And so when we get into a relationship with somebody else, it's literally like, two separate universes colliding, right? Yeah. So how do we expect it to uh, go smoothly? I don't know. Of course, I'm being a little facetious. But in reality, I think the first step to you know really improving our financial psychology and, and personal finance, for that matter, is really just to have a, a curiosity and, and an open-mindedness and an ability to look at and understand that there are two worlds colliding. Mm-hmm. If we don't understand that, we're going to really be trying to get our way, try to control, try to push our significant others to get to a certain outcome. And this is exactly what happened with a couple that I brought up at the beginning of our, our, of our conversation. The, uh, the husband was not willing to let go of his ideas of how money should be treated. He was very rigid and it really made it difficult for open, free flowing conversations. So one other uh, layer that I want to kind of bring up is as much as we just talked about money as a conduit, money is also has a property to be an energy through which we control other people, whether it's our partner in a marriage, whether it's our kids, this is how we show love. And a lot of these topics we actually cover in our love and money course uh, that uh, we've done with uh, uh, my partner that we delve into what are the most common financial behaviors that people uh, engage in. So the guest star of that list is overspending, right? Or retail therapy, especially in COVID, funny enough, Amazon stock prices are going up because people are coping with their distressed emotions, their emotional toll through shopping. Mm-hmm. You know, the other side of that extreme of that spectrum is financial hoarding. And that's somebody who just holds on to every penny, really to a completely absurd and irrational point. There's also financial denial. And I think a lot of what we're seeing in personal finance and financial psychology is just a lack of awareness of our thoughts our beliefs, our cultural narratives, our inner world Mm -hmm. when it comes to money and how we relate to money. So a bunch of things popped out of my head there. First off, I want to kind of highlight a couple of things that you said because I think it was really important. One is you said about the lens, how we perceive like that we have a cultural narrative, I think really helps out for us to be able to be, I guess, humbled enough to realize that maybe our lens 
isn't the optimal lens. It's our lens. So that's fine. But that might open way to be, as you said, curious. And that's the other part I want to say is curious to what our spouse, our partner, whomever we're sharing our financial life, what their lens is. Because I often see, and it reflects back to your story that someone might say, yeah, no, I handle the finance. Everything's fine. Like I handle it. It's good. I make the financial decision. And so that goes to your last point there, two points about money can be an energy to control, which I, I definitely see that often. But then the financial denial is an interesting point you brought in. So let's go back to your couple. Like I'm making assumptions here. Perhaps money was his energy to control his spouse for whatever reason he, he had a desire to control. But maybe she was having some denial that her voice didn't matter. She wasn't heard. So she just went along with it. It sounds like it. Can you speak to that client, mostly the male in this situation, who is, again, I'm making assumptions, but it sounds like he's doing some financial controlling. And the impact on her emotions of being denied, not heard, suppressing her emotions for whatever reason, their coupleship narrative is she doesn't say anything around the money. Can you just talk to that person who is saying to themselves like, oh, no, I handle the money. They know that that's my role. What's happening to this other person's emotions that are probably being suppressed? And what what long-term effects can that have? It's a great question, first of all. You know, what I'm thinking about is every couple has a band. Right. And so part of the courtship early on is to be able to kind of assume certain roles that we have in our culture again. Right. So this is why the culture narrative is important. Usually one of the people in the coupleship becomes the provider and the other one is more the caretaker. It doesn't have to be male, female, but the mm-hmm. male energy, let's say the person who identifies more with the male energy becomes the provider. And the person who identifies more with the female energy becomes a caretaker. And so what happens is in early courtship, the people, uh, each partner kind of assumes their place and their role in that relationship and, you know, really embodies that identity within the relationship. So early on, when the husband became the provider and wanted to take care of the wife, the wife sort of abdicated her power to him mm-hmm. in a way to sort of let him take care of her. And it's a very loving, it can be a very loving dynamic. But when it becomes so extreme that the person completely abdicates all financial responsibility and says, hey, my husband or wife, in this case husband, is taking care of every part of my finances and I have no idea what's going on. I don't know how to balance a checkbook. I don't know how much money is on the account. None of it, but I just feel taken care of. That is the underlying emotion that they're seeking. Mm-hmm. My husband loves me so much that he's taking care of all the finances. You know, that kind of financial denial where it initially didn't start that way, or it was not the initial desire of the, of the wife, unfortunately sort of backfires in the long run because then it does become, you know, a point, an energy of, of control. And I feel like just on some conversations that I've had, some reading is that it gets to a point where that narrative or the story that couple has is that the the individual who delegated all the financial matters to the other person because they want that feeling of love originally feels voiceless as they change. Maybe they have a different idea about how their voice matters, but they have a hard time, I guess, rewriting that script because it's been done a certain way. And 
maybe it's easier just to suppress those emotions. But I got to think that those emotions are going to show up passive in another way if that individual doesn't vocalize them, but they might be scared. So if we're that individual, like the male in your example you opened up with, what do you think some proactive ways individuals managing money can have open dialogue? Again, how do they bring that curiosity, to use your word, to check in? Like maybe things have changed for that person who's totally offloaded the financial burden. What would you say to that person about maybe like doing a speed check, checking in with them? I love that point. And this is exactly where I wanted to go with it is because over a period of 30, 35 years, we obviously change as people. You know, what mattered to us initially may not matter as much. And, you know, that, that was actually exactly the case with this particular couple that, you know, initially the wife uh, wanted to be taken care of and was unsure of herself. And it really mattered to her for her husband to take care of her. But through the years, their relationship ebbed and flowed like any other relationship. So she became more and more confident. She wanted to take care of herself more and more. But he was giving her pushback because this is how he expressed his love to her. Those are the underlying emotional roots. He wanted to continue to express his love and she was not allowing him to do that in the same way that they initially set up. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's why there was a lot of back and forth and pushback and, and uh, conflict. How did it end? How is it ongoing? It's ongoing. It's, it's, it's a really tough conversation. You know, I usually say that, you know, the financial hoarding is one of the most difficult ailments to treat because first of all, Financial hoarding it can actually sort of mimic some prudence, and there's a little bit of prudence, and can almost pass off as, "Oh, I'm healthy. I'm actually, you know, tracking every penny, and I'm looking at my investments." Well, you're doing it so much so that it's completely unhealthy, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. it's really hard to convince that person that what they're doing is actually not only negative, but it's affecting uh, uh, that particular uh, partner, as well as the entire family in an adverse way. You know, the money might be taken care of, but all of the other parts around it, and we can talk about circular causality, which is a concept that when one person, you know, engages in an action, like they save every single penny, it creates uh, equal reaction on the other side. The other partner is going to, you know, either appreciate it or be resentful or feel controlled or so on and so on and so on. So that's the, the cycle of that particular couple, which is called circular causality. Oh, that's really interesting. So what would you suggest then? Like, I would assume every coupleship has this circle of causality at, to some degree. What would you say? How do we check in? How do we be aware of the causation on the other side? I love that question. So the conversation is that in that circle, there's not necessarily just a identified patient or the, the husband, that the wife also engages in some behaviors that keep the husband wanting to, or he's also stuck in his own behavior. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's say holding on to the money but, uh, you know, the wife really wanted him to spend on, you know, a remodel for the kitchen or uh, a trip to Far East, something like that. And so those uh, narratives 
invoke a lot of fear in the husband. Mm-hmm. Right? So when she doesn't get her way, she becomes more and more upset, more and more mad. And it drives the narrative of him wanting to save more and more. So then in financial therapy, what we do, and then to address the circular causality, is we actually point out to each of the partners how they're contributing to the cycle. That the more the wife is resentful, the more she maybe nags, or I don't know what other ways she kind of perpetuates the cycle, the more she's doing that, the more he's going to retract and will want to save and not really give her the exact thing that she's asking for. So finding out different strategies after that, or maybe not nagging, or maybe I would say finding a compromise, of course, right? Finding a compromise. Maybe it's not redoing the entire house, but maybe just uh, one or two rooms and then you know, scaling it out over a period of time. Maybe it's not a big trip to overseas. Maybe it's a trip here in the U.S. somewhere. You know, so again, compromise. Yeah, I've never had that concept, like never thought about that concept in terms of like a coupleship's relationship with money with each other. It's really, really interesting that like, yeah, all of our decisions impact our spouse in some other way. It reminds me though of what you can do. This is just like shooting from the hip. I'm nowhere near a psychologist, but I feel like a lot of people just want to be heard. They want to be seen and they want to have their voice matter. And it seems like implementing some sort of communication that's not defensive, that's not attacking in a positive environment can help that circle have less back and forth if people just feel heard, seen, and their voice matters. I don't, what's your experience on that, that concept of like, we just, as humans, we just want to be significant. We want to be heard. We want to have our voice matter. Well, I don't know if you know, but I think you paraphrased one of the therapy psychology gods who is Carl Rogers. Oh, no, I, maybe I'm reading somewhere. <laughs> so he said that it is our, one of our human needs is to be understood and gotten. And this is why therapy is so effective. When a therapist is able to provide the type of containment, the type of safety, the type of environment where the client feels heard and feels gotten, that's when therapy is successful. And so you put it on the head. And to follow up on that particular point, Yes, exactly. So when we're meeting with couples, we do something that's called a fair fighting contract. There's basically guidelines and rules for both partners to feel safe, for both partners to feel heard, and for both partners to be able to have an open conversation, a curious conversation to really understand the other person's point of view, to be able to live in the other person's shoes. And you'll be surprised that that after some time, whether it's, you know, a year, five years, or 35 years, when there's conflict, when somebody's feeling controlled, not only don't feel gotten, they feel completely misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And there's so much more space between them than the actual physical distance mm-hmm. between the two parties. What did you call that contract? Fair fighting contract. Oh, it's interesting how people might, oh, I'm married. I'm not, I don't need a contract, but I think it's so useful and beneficial, like to be understood. I have a business partner and we went into a contract and we put in our agreements, like what we need to do, but why not with our spouses? I think it's a phenomenal idea. It's just to feel understood. I didn't come up with it, but I'm glad that it could be useful. Yeah, no. Do you have anything on your blog or anything about that contract? 
I don't, but I can write a blog about it. And yeah, <laughs> I think that's why don't we do that? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I really think that's good because like, I, I just think back to our, my relationship with my business partner. We know that if emotions get evoked or emotions get stoked, that we go to the contract and here's what the contract says, black and white, emotionless. And we're like, oh yeah, okay. That makes sense. Here's how we operate. And I think that it's just a phenomenal way to eliminate emotions in a decision, even though that's next to impossible, but the contract was written in a, in like an emotional neutral state that we both agreed on. So yeah, I think that if you get that blog post up, send the link our way. I will absolutely do that. But I want to kind of delve into what you just said. Yeah. Which is when you were writing the contract, you were emotionless and you want to get back to that state. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going to delve into that a little bit. Because... Wait, uh, emotional neutral, maybe? <laughs> Okay. okay. I'll, I'll, I'll pick you up on that. You know, I think emotions are so difficult for so many of us. And I think in our culture, we're having a hard time dealing uh, with our emotions, specifically when it comes to personal finance and money, right? That's a general narrative, if I may bring, bring that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, a cultural narrative is money and emotions should not mix. Mm-hmm. In reality, we're human beings. We're going to be emotive and emotional, and we can't stop that from happening. Or neither should we, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I usually have with my clients is money is one of the most important aspects of our life. It, it signifies success, security, safety, freedom, experience. So why wouldn't I be emotional about something that matters so much to me? Why wouldn't I be emotional about it, right? But I understand at the same time that there is a conversation about bad emotions and good emotions. And I think this is the context in the conversation that hasn't been happening sort of enough. And I would love to bring that into the forefront that our emotions, we experience them on a spectrum. And by the time they do get into this overwhelming, overbearing emotional state, yeah, no, they are definitely impacting us in a way that is not healthy. But really understanding that, you know, there's a way for us to work inner world and our internal lens to get back from the negative, overwhelming emotion more into a positive or equilibrium of an emotional state, right? Yeah. And, you know, I appreciate you catching that when I was saying that on the contract and bringing that up. And I guess... Something that I've found that situation has done. And I mean, for 2020 has been probably the most emotional year I've personally had. And it's been, for whatever reasons, a year that I've really decided to sit and like understand the meaning and the, like what the emotions are actually trying to tell me. And it's been eye opening and actually perspective changing that how valuable these emotions are. And maybe it's because there's no Ironmans for me to run and marathons to run that I couldn't distract myself from it. I don't know. But I've learned so many valuable lessons from just sitting with my emotions this year that it's not that I've ever thought that like intentionally I want to go be busy and run an Ironman to avoid my emotions. But I think there's some element that subconsciously that was happening. And 
I agree fully that these emotions, they're just so pot, like, they can be used in a positive way. But for me, what it really comes to mind when I look at money, emotions, and emotions in general, that contract that I have with my business partners, along to get to the point where Viktor Frankl's famous quote of like putting that space between the stimulus and response. And that's where I feel like a contract could help is that I don't know if we're all very good at having that emotion, understanding what it means, and then reacting, where sometimes it's just like a reaction. And I guess that's where personal finance can... I guess we can improve is if we can put that space between our stimulus and response to respond accordingly. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to thank you for bringing him into our conversation. Uh, Obviously, one of the most amazing books ever written. My humble opinion. Yeah. It's the Frankel Man's Search for Meaning. If you haven't read it, please do. (laughs) It's a dark book, but yeah. And I love the conversation about you know, that space between structure and response. Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting is there was a study published earlier this year, I think, that surveyed, it was actually a meta-study that surveyed 190 brain scan studies. And what they found was our brain processes money, sex, and food in the same part of the brain called the basal ganglia. And even though sex and food are sort of our primary reward systems, and money is kind of a secondary, but in the modern day and age, it's basically a primary reward system because without money, we cannot buy food. And you know, there's a lot of ties between financial security and our sexual lives as well. Our ability to provide and sort of court our partners is a big part of it, let's say, right? So it's just really interesting to me that even on a neurological level, that space between stimulus and response is processed on the same instinctual level in our brain as uh, sex and food is. So really, food, money, and sex are our basic uh, core issues, is what we call in psychology. I mean, I guess that's a topic for a whole nother conversation. It's just like the fact that we're really just not hardwired to deal properly with money. Like where you, like you just said, it, where the money conversation is processed, it's like difficult to be rational. Yes and no. I I think that really understanding that our brain processes money in that same instinctual level Mm -hmm. really can inform our overall financial psychology, Mm -hmm. right? And give us more of an ability to add that little pause, that that space between stimulus and response. Yeah. Right. Right. So when let's say we're in fear of Sorry, just to kind of take it back to the caveman conversation, yeah. right? If we are uh, afraid of a, a lion chasing us on the savannas, so <laughs> it's so cartoony, but you know it does yeah, work yeah. for example's sake. There is a conversation for really interpreting that and really realizing that hey, there is a lion, and there's no space for us to ponder and feel and think <laughs> and you know yeah. throw a, philosophical ideas around. But if it's just an imaginary stressor or a stressor that poses itself as threatening, but it's actually not, then we can use our frontal cortex to discern that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and put that pause mm-hmm. between the response. Mm-hmm. Right? Is it the fear of the doom and gloom that the stock market is going to crash? Yeah, it's a possibility. Mm-hmm. But let's say let's assign some real numbers to that possibility happening. Mm-hmm. 
and again, COVID happened and nobody knew that, that it was coming. Right. Yeah. And I think to your point, it's that awareness that that's how our brain processes, but that gives us the ability to your stock market example to, to put that space. Um, yeah. Cause our ancestors certainly didn't want that space when that lion or tiger's chasing them, nor did like even around savings, which I don't want to, I, I want to respect our time, like around saving. Like if you look at our ancestors, saving was, you'd get shunned from the tribe. You'd get kicked out of the tribe. Your food would spoil because you have no refrigerator for hundreds of years. That's how we operated. So I think it's having awareness that that's how our brain works. And then how do we put that space between it can be a beneficial thing for our financial lives. So I see the time here. I, I want to ask you one last question. Thank you for conversation. It was, it's very, I, I can't believe an hour flew by so quickly, but Stay here. <laughs> if you were to write a legacy letter to your great grandchildren about money, what would be one lesson that you would teach them or you'd want to leave them based on your experience around money? Wow. What a, what an amazing question. I think that we have a relationship with money. And that money has been with us throughout our lives. Our relationship with money really starts in the womb when our moms, if they're financially stressed, exuding and excreting uh, cortisol into the bloodstream. And that way it affects us even in utero in the womb. Obviously, by the time we're born, if we're born to a lower socioeconomic status family, if there's, you know, financial hardship, we're then the nurture part of financial stress and our, our personal finance really starts taking over. And we get to unfortunately learn the, the lessons of what not to do from our parents. And so that becomes the intergenerational narrative. And then it informs our adult decisions with money. So how we relate to money is uh, probably one of the most important aspects that I would want to pass on to my, my great grandkids. And I think there's a, well, that says money is not the issue. It's how we relate to money that's the issue. That's fantastic. I really, really like that. And it's not about the investment. It's not about the rate of return per se. It's the how we relate to it. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And your generosity to share your knowledge, your wisdom on uh, money and our emotions and this cultural narrative that we all have is much greatly appreciated. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in this week. I really enjoyed that conversation. If you've been enjoying these conversations, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review as they really help bring great guests week after week. Until next time, have a great day.